This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, it's my uh, pleasure to introduce the moderator for this next panel, uh, my colleague uh, John Mitchell, who is a member of our computer science department and will be heading the panel uh, with our distinguished alum. John? Great. Uh, thank you, Hector. In the back and watching the first session, I was somehow reminded of Skilling 191, Skilling 193, these small uh, classrooms. There, just uh, out of curiosity, how many people in the audience have taken a class or taught a class in Skilling? Well, so that's a familiar place. Uh, I remember as an undergraduate, I took a course there from Don Knuth, some other courses from other people, something from Ed and. Nils in the auditorium, and then when I started teaching here, I taught a course in Skilling 191 or 193, one of the upstairs rooms. And the normal ergonomics there is you sit at the table and draw on a little piece of paper and there's a camera above filming that. And what I found after a few lectures is that really put me to sleep. And then I talked with Don Knuth about it and he says, yes, you go to sleep and you watch all your students go to sleep. And the other thing you can watch is because you're leaning down like this and there's a camera there, you can watch a, your, yourself lose your hair, which I <laughs> also watch. So after a while I decided it really wasn't a good way to teach in that classroom and I started standing up and teaching with this big fat piece of chalk that the TV guys give you. So I, I thought, and I noticed this morning Don uh, stood up and that sort of livened things up. So uh, we're going to go across this uh, board here. We're going to... Uh, feature uh, distinguished academic alumni of our department, and I'll let them each speak for 10 or 15 minutes. We'll hear whatever they have to say or whatever they choose to say this morning. I'm sure it'll be an entertaining and exciting uh, series of, of presentations. And we had a little discussion last night. We decided to go in chronological order. And I'm not sure whether chronological means by entrance time into the department, or exit time into the department, or whether we really want to get into the details of how those vary for each person. But we have approximately people lined up in an approximate chronological order, and we'll try to follow that and see what happens. So first, Barbara Liskoff, who's currently at MIT and was here at some point, and she'll tell us when and what happened and anything else she thinks is exciting about that. So I decided uh, for my 10 or 15 minutes to mostly just do reminiscences of what it was like to be at Stanford in the early days. Um, I went to Berkeley as an undergraduate, and I graduated in 1961 with a degree in mathematics. And I decided that uh, I wasn't ready to go to graduate school at that point, so I wanted to get a job. And so I went out and looked for a job as a mathematician and the only thing I was able to find was a job offer that asked me to plot graphs. And so <laughs> that didn't sound very interesting, so I looked for a job as a programmer, and I got a job as a programmer. At that time, they would take anybody that walked in the door. They were so desperate for programmers, and of course, there was no computer science, and so uh, nobody had any training. And so I got a job, a good job as a programmer, and that's how I got into computer science. Um, I worked at the MITRE Corporation for a year, and then I moved to Harvard, where I started to work on the language translation project. So this is 1962, and at that time, they believed that the language translation problem was essentially solved. It was just a matter of a little bit of programming, and they would be able <laughs> to translate 
languages. Of course, they were having a little problem, which is that they couldn't parse. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, so although they thought that they could translate languages easily, they were having a lot of trouble parsing sentences. And one sentence I remember in particular that they were particularly interested in was, they are flying planes, which if you think about it, has several interpretations even for us, and for the program had many more possible parsings. Now, I was not, I had no knowledge of AI. I was just a lowly programmer, and my job was to maintain the, the so-called language translation program, which was written in assembler and had a, a, a listing that was two or three inches thick. And all I was doing, I wasn't, you know, inventing techniques to, to do language translation. I was just maintaining this huge program written in assembler, and it was non-reentrant code. So the program was busily modifying various branch instructions as it went along in order to speed things up. And, of course, what that meant was when an error showed up, it was really tough to find it. From the point of view of prospective computer scientists, it was a great job, however, because it really got me into the, to understanding how computers work. And, of course, it showed me some really bad things that later on I was very careful never to do myself. After a year of this, I decided that uh, I wanted to go back to school because I felt that I wasn't learning fast enough. And uh, there wasn't much that you could go to in those days. So Stanford didn't have a department, but they had a program. Harvard had uh, something in applied math that you maybe could have treated as computer science. MIT had something in the EE department, but I would never have gone to MIT because to me that was a very foreign environment for women. Uh, and anyway, my family was from California, so I decided to come to Stanford. And I showed up at Stanford without support. I had no idea that you actually could get something like an RA. And my recollection is that I arrived the first day. I went over to Polio Hall. So this was in the days when we were at Polio Hall, which was sort of on the outskirts of campus. It was like we were sort of an appendage to the main body of the university. It was beautiful over there, quiet, very nice. And I was walking up the steps, and I met John McCarthy. And I said to John, I'm sure, I don't know whether this is accurate or not, but I said to John uh, that I was looking for support. Could he support me? And he said, yes. And so, <laughs> you know, now in retrospect, I was probably admitted because they thought I was in AI. And so, because I'd been doing this work on the language translation project. But at any rate, that's how I came to work with John McCarthy. So I worked with John McCarthy, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. So as I said, um, it was a pretty small department. I really don't remember how many students were admitted that same year that I came in. I can tell you for sure there were no women, aside from myself. Uh, the following year, Sue Graham joined as a student. And a few years after that, uh, Ruja Nabaichi joined. So although there were very few women in the program, if you think about the women in computer science who are well known from that era, a lot of them were coming from Stanford. So they were doing a good job of that. Um, I don't recall there being a lot of computer science courses. Uh, the, however, of course, there was the whole university open to us, and so I took a lot of courses in math, logic, predicate calculus, stuff like that. Dana Scott was on the faculty then, and I took several courses with him before he went to CMU and invented denotational semantics. Um, as far as computer science courses were concerned, I remember uh, a course in AI where I learned about LISP. Um, there was some system course that I really can't remember at all. There was a compiler course. This one I remember very fondly. This might have been by the time then maybe Nicholas Veard had joined the faculty. I'm not sure, though, whether he was teaching this course when I took it. What I remember for sure, though, 
is that we had to use a mainframe computer to run our projects. And so this is the days of punch cards. We had to submit our jobs on punch cards. The turnaround was terrible. It was a couple of days. I think we could even submit our jobs to be punched for us on those sheets where you had to write each character carefully in a little square. Though I think they had an innovation. You could punch them yourself if you wanted to. And what I remember is that the whole course was having a lot of trouble with this, because how can you get a project done in a short period of time with this kind of turnaround? And so we would take over the machine room at night. And as a, as a class, all together, we would run the computer, you know, submitting our jobs in batch mode, but at least we were getting a fast turnaround. Um, the, um, when the department formed, as you've been hearing, in around 1965 or 66, uh, they offered the first set of qualifying exams. And nobody said this out loud, but if you think about what you heard about who was on the faculty, it won't surprise you to know that one of these exams was in numerical analysis, one was in artificial intelligence, and then there was also an exam in systems. So there wasn't any theory. Oh, by the way, something I meant to tell you about that compiler course is that parsing was the really big deal. Because this is before the days of LRK grammars. People didn't really understand yet how to think systematically about the parsing part of the problem, never mind all the stuff that comes after that. Anyway, there were quals in these three areas. There was no notion of computer theory. And uh, I wasn't very good in numerical analysis. I uh, kind of tried to weasel my way out of that exam. Uh, but anyway, somehow I passed. Seven of us took that exam. Four of us passed it. There was myself, there was my friend Raj Reddy sitting right next to me, uh, Bill McKeeman, and Jim Painter. So we were the sort of like the first uh, PhD class coming out of um, Stanford. Now, about that time, the AI lab got started. And as w was mentioned in the previous session, this was up in the hills behind campus, a great big building where uh, they had all this uh, equipment, including this robotic arm. And one of the things I remember about that building was that I was always very careful to give a wide berth to that robotic arm because it wasn't, <laughs> Raj remembers that it was very powerful and it wasn't clear that it was completely under control. <laughs> now, there was a tremendous innovation going on at the AI lab, though, because we were using time sharing. So I was able to use my teletype to actually type in and interact with the computer directly. So this was, you know, a huge, I mean, it was really a huge innovation if you think about it in the course of computer science. And it made the job of carrying out a project so much easier. I was working on chess endgames. That's what I did my PhD thesis on. Uh, in those days, you know, chess was considered to be a real keystone problem for artificial intelligence. And uh, so I was working with John. John was very interested in this problem, and chess endgames use a different kind of strategy than other parts of the chess. Uh, you know, there's the, 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 the beginning, the middle, and the end. They're all different strategies. And so I was working on a particular strategy for chess endgames. That's what I did my PhD thesis on. Um, that's pretty much what I wanted to tell you about um, what it was like back then. Uh, so I'll just tell you a couple things about what happened to me afterwards. It was clear to me. Uh, somewhere along the way that I really wasn't, AI was not the right field for me. I was really interested in learning. But at that time, what people thought you did for learning <coughs> was you tried to make the computer work like a person. 
if you think about what's going on in machine learning today, you know, th those machine learning programs are not much like people at all. They're doing statistical inference and so forth, but that just wasn't the way it was be being done there, and I had no idea how to make progress. And I was learning more and more about systems, and I really thought systems was the area for me, but that it was probably, I decided to stick and finish my thesis in AI because that seemed like the expedient thing to do at the time. And when I left MIT, uh, I went to work for MITRE in an industrial research lab, and I switched into systems, and the first project I did there was to uh, build a, uh, a machine architecture using microprogramming on the Interdata 4, uh, which had a very small memory, and you had to run it through punch tapes and so forth. And I designed an instruction set, and then I built an operating system, and I submitted a paper on that operating system to SOSP, which is the premier uh, systems conference, and it won a prize. And as a result of that, I got some job interviews, and I ended up at MIT. So it was, that was the progression that ended me up at MIT. Uh, before I had left MITRE, I had already started working in programming methodology. I got very interested in how do you build modular programs that uh, you know, keep their interfaces strong, and I had this idea of what I called a multi-operation module. And this was work that was contemporaneous with Dave Parnas's early papers on this, pro this, this topic. And when I went to MIT, um, I decided to think about this as a programming language issue. And so this is what led me to develop the idea of abstract data types. And uh, uh, in some sense, abstract data types are like half of the object-oriented uh, programming that we understand today. Uh, there were no, uh, the work that I did didn't have any kind of inheritance in it, but it had a very strong emphasis on abstraction, encapsulation, and the distinction between the behavior and the implementation of the behavior. And if you listen to John's talk this morning, uh, in retrospect, I think maybe some of this came from his interest in program verification, the, the idea that there's the abstract thing the program is supposed to do and the concrete thing that you use to implement that behavior. And that was really the focus of that work on data abstraction and Clue. After that, I moved into distributed computing. Um, I've done a lot of work. I did some more programming language work there. I did more programming methodology work, including uh, work on what is the meaning of a subtype. If you think about the early work in object-oriented programming, it was all about, well, this class is a subclass of that other one because I changed the code a little bit, and there was no notion of what was the meaning of those programs. And so I did some work on what is the meaning of a subtype. Uh, I'm still working in distributed computing today. Uh, most recently, I've been interested in very large-scale storage systems that would be, you know, you could purchase your storage online and it would be highly reliable, highly available in spite of um, failures and malicious attacks. And I've been doing a lot of work on Byzantine fault tolerance. So uh, that's my story. Thanks. Uh, well, well, thank you, Barbara. We, we will probably have... Uh, We'll try to set aside a substantial amount of time for questions from the audience in this session, but why don't we uh, give e each of the panelists a chance to speak first. I guess if the last panel was the founding faculty of the, of the computer science department, maybe this panel is the founding students of the, of the uh, computer science department. As Barbara mentioned, there were four of us in the first batch of computer science programs. And I nearly got into trouble between two faculty members. Uh, at the beginning of the, the courses, 
I went to John McCarthy. I said, I don't want to take this numerical analysis course. I didn't come here to do numerical analysis. Why are you making me take this? You know? I said, it's a requirement. You have to do it. So I took the course. At the end of the course, I told Gene, I really enjoyed this course. You know? So apparently, in the faculty discussions, this became a contentious issue. And they said, is Raj you know, lying to one or the other or something else? <laughs> so I, at that time, they hadn't invented the term non-monotonic reasoning. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so there's one minor error in the, in the thing. It says Bruce McKeeman. Uh, it's actually Bill McKeeman. He's a good friend of all of us, did a great job. And uh, both of us were the first batch of two students to graduate from. It's just that I took my orals in the morning, he took it in the afternoon, so it's not clear who is first and who is second. But uh, it's, we were in the first batch. So I have uh, some slides, because I thought there are a lot of things that are worth kind of um, showing many of you who may not uh, be aware of what was happening in the 60s. Uh, I, I kind of nearly titled this talk, Back to the Future. Everything we're doing now and everything we'll be doing 20 years from now, we were already doing in the 60s, okay? <laughs> so that's, I, I want to prove that point by kind of taking you through some, some slides here. Okay. Okay, so basically, if you look at what was happening in the, in the, oops, this is going too fast here. Okay. So we were working on a wide range of topics. I think you'll see it here where it appears there. Oh, I see. Okay. I call the 60s the golden age of sail, Sanford Islands, and I'd like to tell you why. Uh, here's a list of a uh, wide range of topics we were working on. Robotics, vision, knowledge, engineering, speech, language understanding, computer music, and a large number of other smaller size projects like chess that Barbara was working on, symbolic mathematics, correctness of program, theorem proving, common sense, and so on. Besides that, we're also uh, uh, working on a number of things that would not be normally called AI time sharing and LISP and hardware, graphical editors, pieces of glass was the term that was invented at the time, which later became Windows. It was actually invented at the AI labs um, and the theory of computation. So let me quickly go through each. I'm not going to read through, I'll let you look at the, the details. Uh, the hand-eye project was headed by Jerry Feldman. That was one of the largest projects. It led to uh, vision and robotics industries. There was also work in image analysis and understanding uh, led to uh, vision and robotics at UPenn and uh, face recognition work that was done by Mike Kelly uh, led to, you know, later on vision, uh, vision and robotics at CMU. Uh, if you look at all the mobile, mobile robotics work that was going on at that time, Marvin Minsky came in 1964. They thought they could build a Mars rover and have it deployed within three, four years, it never happened. But nevertheless, that got started the whole mobile robotics effort, which indirectly influenced the directions at SRI and MIT. 
uh, the whole knowledge engineering expert systems revolution happened at that time under Feigenbaum, and other people uh, were, uh, were you know, Josh Lederberg and Bruce Buchanan, and this led to expert systems, knowledge engineering, knowledge-based systems, and early applications of AI. Then there's speech, uh, which probably uh, is the most influential branch of speech recognition in the, in the world today, led to Dragon Systems, Apple, Microsoft, and indirectly IBM and Bell Labs. If you look at language understanding, Ken Colby and uh, Horace Neer, Roger Shank were all there at that time, and that led to whole language processing industry and led to language natural language programs at a number of universities. And if you look at computer music, uh, this was started by John Chowning. He and I used to compete for the PDP-1 cycles and, you know, in 1964. And, uh, and that led to uh, the FM music synthesis algorithms and which were then licensed by Yamaha. Apparently now the Stanford music department is populated by uh, computer musicians. At that time, he, they wouldn't give him a tenure. <laughs> it was, and there were a whole bunch of other AI projects. I'll let you read them. I won't go through them because I think they're all turned out to be very important. And they had to start at that time uh, at, CMU, at Stanford. And uh, we also were doing a number of things that now would be called non-AI research at sale. Programming languages, Lisp and Sale, time sharing and real-time systems. Uh, that was the first time anybody was using scanline graphics and video terminals that I, I came across. Uh, this was in the 1967, 68 timeframe. User interfaces, there were systems like graphical text editors and graphical debugging. I still am looking for a good graphical debugger. I can't, can't find one. Maybe some of you can point me at one. Uh, there were uh, people saying that we can do better than DEC. There were a large number of systems people at the AI labs. That, is Les Ernest here? You know, he was kind of the leader of our, our, our team there. The another thing that's very interesting to me is how the work uh, under McCarthy influenced a large number of other areas. It, maybe it didn't influence, at least he thought about them, and other people probably independently thought about them too. There's a famous uh, sale memo called number 28. He wrote in 1965, which kind of broadly called, talked about theory of computation, which talked about semantics of programming languages, data structures, and a representation of time-dependent and simultaneous processes, speed of computation, storage of information, which is databases, syntax-directed computation, and equivalence of programs, and halting problems. John McCarthy has this habit of writing these things down and never working on them, but, but that's his greatness, you know, that namely. To, to be able to see the important areas that might ultimately become relevant to the rest of the field. Uh, this is, uh, there are a number of other things we did at that time which are still kind of, I think, are, we invented the concept of a scientific documentary. Many of the things we did became little 16 millimeter movies, which was the best way of communicating what we were doing at that time. And, uh, and uh, so looking back, that we didn't invent everything, we didn't, we're not working on everything. There are a few things we left out. The idea of personal computers was on nobody's mind. And uh, even though Alan Kay was there on the faculty, his Dynabook 
is probably, was probably very different than the Apple and PCs that we've come to see. The internet, although it was uh, being started in 68, we were one of the first nodes, uh, was kind of viewed as plumbing and not very interesting research. And uh, Moore's Law and VLSI, we didn't even know about, and graphics and human-computer interaction, uh, which have since become very important areas of computer science, uh, were not there on the horizon. Although we were doing graphics, uh, and we were doing user interface design, but they were not seen as an important area in themselves. Looking back, we were off in, uh, in timing. We thought we could solve all the AI problems like speech, vision, robotics, language, in a few years or a few, you know, tens of years, it looks like these are 100 year problems and we'll be working on them in the future. That's why I said back to the future. So there are lots of things that are happening now, which you might, in the, in the learning, Barbara mentioned the whole issue of learning in AI. That was not seriously looked at at that time. We are now looking at it. We still don't know how to build integrated intelligences where you have a system that learns from experience, uses a lot of knowledge, communicates in langu with language, operates in real time, all at the same time. We have demonstrations of each of these, but not all of them together. So we don't know how to build these things. So the same thing is true in what we were doing then and what we are doing, what's happening today uh, in computer science broadly. I'm not going to go through this. So where are we going to go? What is the future? My two favorite futures in AI are uh, the book by Arthur Clarke called The Songs of the Distant Earth. How many of you have read it? So it kind of envisages a future where uh, mother ships containing all the knowledge of the world are shipped off to other planets with Earth-like environments where they kind of go colonize the space and uh, grow, you know, clones of you and me uh, in that space and, and the trees and the fishes and the animals and, and the factories and everything else. So the issue is, how do you capture all that knowledge? And do we have enough people in the world so it has to be something that is kind of learned from experience and by observation rather than being programmed. And the other one is Ray Kurzweil's book, uh, more recent book, on, uh, which talks about immortality, where he's, he says this physical body is irrelevant if you can clone the mind and it can live on forever in the, in the rest of the universe. And so those are the kind of two futures of AI I'm fond of. And in computer science, broadly, computers are no longer for computing, they're for entertainment and communication. And I think somebody from Park said, people are the killer app of, uh, of the information society. And software as a service is already here. I think we'll see soon, slowly, slow depth of software product market and the web services and other things. And finally, the mistake we made was to ignore PCs in computer science for a long time. And uh, the next thing, mistake we might make is that cell phone will be the computing engine of the future. It's not the cell phone as we have it, but that platform broadly. It'll have speech and vision, input and output. It'll have enough computational power that, that you have in a supercomputer today. It'll have enough memory. It'll be on your body, it is mobile. And so the issue is what computer science is implied in there. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. I think uh, our next uh, 
contributor is Ron Rivest, also at MIT, and I think you have the biographical information in your handout, so I won't say anything more. Ron? Thanks, John. So thanks for inviting me to participate here. It's a pleasure to be back and to see the department thriving as it is. Uh, I had the pleasure of attending the security workshop yesterday that uh, Dan Bonet and John ran. It was, it was really quite successful. It was nice to see all the work going on in that area in this department these days. It wasn't really clear what our marching orders were here. I thought I would give some, uh, try to give you some feeling as to what it was like for me to be a graduate student here when I was here uh, from 69 to 73. So I guess I was really part of the second round of the, of the founding students, if you will. Uh, I went to Yale as an undergraduate in mathematics, uh, applied to MIT to go to graduate school and didn't get in. So I came out here where I was accepted and uh, I guess worked out for the best. So here I am uh, sometime around then with long hair. Hair seems to be a theme of these uh, kind of meetings. And, and uh, so on my bike, I bike to Polly all the time from living in Escondido, whatever. Uh, it was a great pleasure to be here. Uh, Bob Floyd was my advisor for my thesis and the work I did. Uh, and I really learned a lot from Bob, and, and uh, uh, he's, uh, his work in algorithms was a real inspiration. I remember being blown away by some of his lectures on, on algorithms, uh, uh, heap sort and other things, just beautiful marvels of, of both uh, algorithmic analysis and, and design as well as pedagogy. Bob was a real stickler for clear lectures, clear exposition, uh, really finding the best way of describing something, and uh, I, I learned a lot from him about the, the craft of, of, of uh, being a professor and, and teaching uh, from him. Algol W was something he taught a lot. I, I helped him uh, with, with some of the courses he taught there as a teaching assistant. Um, he was always very good with, with advice too, uh, and, and, and the, 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 a good epigram. One of his uh, favorites that I remember hearing a lot was, why is there always time to, to do it over but never enough time to do it right the first time? Uh, and he would say that often. Uh, one of the things he got me involved with was a paper that uh, uh, established that you could do median finding in linear times so was the paper at Blum, Floyd, Platt, Pratt, Rivest, and Tarjan, uh, which was a project that started, I guess, in Manny Blum's office. I never met Manny Blum during this project, actually. Bob and, and Manny talked, and, and Bob came down and said, Manny's got some interesting ideas about how to, how to do uh, medians. And, and they weren't linear time then, uh, but then with a collection of students, we, we figured out uh, with Vaughn and, and Bob and myself and, uh, and with Manny by phone and whatever, we uh, figured out, uh, this, here's sort of the, the, the magic diagram, you know, sort the columns and take the medians of the columns and take the median of the medians recursively and you get this cute recurrence which we didn't know how to solve at the time but finally figured out. This paper got accepted at the fourth stock conference, the, the, the theory conferences had just started, that was in Denver, uh, and they gave us a lot of flack because a five-authored paper, I mean the field was so new, a five-authored paper just was, was a thing that they hadn't seen before and they figured it was some kind of scam to get students to go to the conference, get their way paid or something like that. And so, but anyway, that was fun. Um, and Don was also a, sort of a co-mentor and co-advisor for, for things I did there. I remember this, his problem classes that he taught and, and the exciting lectures he gave. Uh, he was working on the art of computer programming. Uh, I remember making some minor contributions in some of the things he was working on at the time on optimal binary search trees and, and O notation and things like that. And I got to, to work with him uh, on a paper, one of my first papers. I guess I've got Knuth Distance One. Um, a bibliography of sorting with, with Don, so we worked with him on trying to organize all of the stuff he was getting together for volume three, and, and uh, 
I wrote his name here with, with the middle initial because I remember Don always knows the middle initial of everybody he ever meets and always puts it in because uh, he's, he's a stickler for, for details. And his assistant, Phyllis Winkler, was, was a marvel of the department at the time too. She was really the mother to all of the students and, and made sure everybody was doing well and, and uh, took care of everybody. And uh, so I mentioned her too as, as someone who's helped set the character and tone of the department in a great way. One of the things that Don did was he ran an evening seminar that was a lot of fun. It was at his house, and uh, he kept a, a log of everybody that attended. I know as you walk in and, and had a speaker every time, that was really quite special. Um, Dick Carp came once and talked about NP completeness. NP completeness had just started to come on the scene then, and Dick had turned a lot of, shown that a lot of problems were NP complete and, and described those. And I remember working on the traveling salesman problem uh, hard for a while after that, trying to see if I could solve that one. And it didn't succeed, obviously. But uh, these kind of seminars were a great inspiration. Also, Ron, Ron Graham came and talked one of those evenings, and that, that was a lot of fun, too. I remember after the talk, which I don't remember what the talk was about anymore now, some combinatorial problem that Ron had solved. But after that, Don brought out a whole bushel basket full of tennis balls and insisted that Ron teach everybody how to juggle. And uh, this is where I learned how to juggle. He doesn't really have that many arms, and he can't juggle that many balls at once. This is some photographic artifact, of course. But uh, he is a master juggler. He's a perv if you've ever seen him. He was president of the Juggling Association for a while. Another person was, uh, had a lot of influence on my career was uh, David Klarner. David and, and Vashik Shvatel were two that uh, Don had brought to, to um, help out with the growth of the department. And David was a combinatorial mathematician, um, but with a strong interest in computer science. And I spent quite a bit of time with David. We worked on the polyominoes problem. How many, how many things can you make out of a number of squares, n squares, and show that the limit uh, grow, grows and the limit grows exponentially with some constant that's bounded. So those are the kind of problems that were a lot of fun to work on. We did, wrote computer programs to figure that out. And he was also a master woodworker and, and puzzle maker. And, and uh, so here's a couple of problems. If you're ever looking for a puzzle, go make yourself one of these, or you know, three one by one by threes and 29 one by two by twos into a five by five by five cube. Um, David was a good friend and, and his passing was, was uh, very sad. Um, Vashik Shvatal, as I said, was, was uh, another uh, uh, colleague that uh, Don brought on board, combinatorics, worked on the perfect graph conjecture, linear programming, and uh, we took a trip to Mexico together, or tried to, Gil and, and Vashek and I. Uh, again, the hair comes into play here. We got as far as the border, uh, and the, the border guards uh, decided that we were not to go to Mexico City until we got our hair cut. <laughs> um, my hair was about as long as Vashek's there, and we, we declined and actually went to Arizona instead. A lot of other CS faculty, I uh, took uh, courses from Zohar Mana, John McCarthy, John Harriet. I enjoyed the, the numerical analysis classes, actually, but I guess I'm more of a mathematician, maybe, I don't know. Jerry Feldman, Gene Golub, Ed Feigenbaum, George Forsyth, and others. So just a great faculty at the time, a lot of exciting things happening. The field was new and problem, you know, a lot of low-hanging fruit, a lot of exciting things happening all over the place. Computing punch cards have already been mentioned. Um, so we started off when I was there. The transition happened, I felt, while I was there. We started off learning about programming on punch cards. Then there was the Wilbur time-sharing system with, with some connection to some machine somewhere, which I never knew where it was. And then finally, I did some work at sale. Here's a PDP-10 on, on the lower right, uh, where uh, you know this is a machine with 300,000 instructions per second, time-shared. And so it was uh, an interesting, a nice machine, plus uh, Space War you could play at night if you weren't up there at night. Fellow students, Von Pratt, Leo Gibas, Bob Tarzan, Dick Seitz, Doug Bratz, Mike Fredman, Gilles Kahn, Jean Vimont, Malcolm Nui, Denny Brown, Barbara Ryder, all sort of contemporaries. So we were the sort of the second tier of, of or second round of, of students there, and it was a, a great group of colleagues and friends. 
I did work up at the, at the Stanford I live at the CART project a bit with Bruce Bumgart, who had been mentioned earlier, um, sort of the early stages of this. Uh, the problem was, as he gave it to me, write some assembly language that will find the road in a picture. And so I was up late at night at Stanford AI Lab trying to write assembly language that would find the road. The, the great benefit for me of this was not only the, the intellectual challenge, of course, but the draft deferment that came with, with this job because it was ARPA funded. Otherwise, I would have been in Vietnam. Um, I eventually did get drafted, although I flunked my physical because of my terrible eyesight, whatever. So the cart couldn't see much better. <laughs> <laughs> Teaching, there were some opportunities to learn how to teach here. Our TA positions were great. Uh, Bob Floyd's summer algo course I took over one one summer, and that special TV room that was mentioned was an interesting challenge to, to work with. California, I think just one of the things I remember most about coming to Stanford at that time, though, was just the, being an East Coast boy, I grew up in Schenectady, New York, and coming out to California with just the, the raw beauty of the state and traveling up and down the coast and seeing it was just, just marvelous and just a, a stunning change from, from the East Coast. Um, my wife was with me, too. It was our first anniversary, and Gail on the coastline, too. We just had a great time being here in California. That's one of the special things about Stanford, just its location. Finally, the thesis happened. Uh, as you can see, it was not written in tech. Tech wasn't quite ready at the time. This was T. Roth, uh, and it was a, a thesis about uh, retrieval of, uh, from large databases and uh, some hashing techniques built on uh, parsing up the cube in various ways. And I remember being concerned at the time about you know, what, the social impact of what I was doing, and so this is a theme that's continued, I guess. You know, what, what I was, you know, here I am developing algorithms for searching large databases, and what, what, how could this be used eventually, and, and so on too. And so today, these, we have these problems in, in spades with uh, Google, uh, you know, giving information to the government and so on. Just a few economic notes. I remember getting three hundred dollars a month for my NSF fellowship. Right. I remember that uh, Escondido Village cost one hundred and twenty-five dollars a month in rent. I remember gas being 28 cents a gallon, and I remember receiving food stamps because I was below the poverty line, and, and, and uh, so that I qualified for food stamps then. That, that was, and they were, they were appreciated. Politics that were not so much different from today, right? There was un, unpopular war, you know. Unpopular president. There's a draft then, which is a huge difference. I remember working on elections back then, George McGovern. Selection uh, people said go home. You know he's lost, and I remember computer security being an issue then too, as as demonstrations uh, were threatening the computer science uh, security facility. So it was computer security in a political sense, if you will. So since then, uh, my connections with Jean Vimont and Jean Gilles Kahn led me to France for a postdoc, and then I went to MIT finally. Uh, I, I got interested in cryptography then. I did not have any connection with Marty Hellman or Whit Diffie here when I was here. Uh, but of course, the, the Stanford influence uh, with their invention of public key uh, was, was uh, major in what, what I've done since. A couple of boys, they've both gotten into MIT actually, and so they're, they're, they're there now. I've uh, written a textbook very much uh, inspired by the works of, of Don and, and Bob Floyd, and also uh, Jeff Ullman with, with a, his, his algorithm text, and uh, been active since. And, and the theme of applying computer science to problems with social impact has, has continued, uh, very much uh, involved in the voting work today and trying to secure voting work with uh, uh, David Dill, who's here working hard on that, and Peter Neumann and others. Uh, uh, so I've, I've taken the, what we've learned how to do in computer science and applying it to interesting hard real world problems uh, is a theme, not only here at Stanford, but for all of us, I think, and a challenge for all of us. So uh, thanks for your attention. Thanks, Ron. A lot of fun pictures in those slides.
Have we sorted out who's chronologically next? Okay, we have a winner. Margaret Wright from currently at NYU will be the, our next speaker. So I don't have any slides, but I thought uh, I get repressed energy when I'm giving talks, so I thought here I'd have a chance to move around more. So um, I always have trouble when I'm trying to do what might be called an unstructured, non-technical talk. I like to have a theme, and the word game is something that I was taught a while ago, which is you take some set of words that the audience knows, and then you use the letters that make up those words to define your talk. So I thought the title of this panel is Since We've Been Gone, which is really good. It's got a lot of E's and some other good letters in it. But what I wanted to talk about, I wanted an H and an A. And then I realized I could make it Since We Have Been Gone, and it would have all the letters. So as I go along, if you want to follow along, you can cross off the letters. Okay. So first I thought I would describe my career a little bit, which has been somewhat non-standard. I was surprised to be on a panel of academic graduates of the department, because I've only been at NYU for four years. So the majority of my career, I was not actually in an academic position. So uh, like Barbara, interestingly enough, I got a master's degree in Stanford, uh, at Stanford in computer science, and then I went to work at GTE Sylvania doing scientific programming, and I worked there for five years. And I discovered some very interesting things. It's one of those situations where weird things happen and you think this will make a good story later. So I won't tell you those good stories except to say that I became convinced, wrongly, as it turns out, that if I got a PhD, I could control my own destiny and I could do whatever I wanted to. Well, that wasn't quite right, but it was a very good decision to come back to Stanford. So I came back and I worked on numerical analysis, scientific computing, I'll say a little bit more about that later, and I was a PhD student here, had the joy of having an office in Sarah House, which was a separate place where some AI people and some uh, numerical analysts sat, and also having an office at Slack, the Linear Accelerator Center, which was, which was great fun. Uh, then I went on to a soft money position, uh, research, uh, what it was, research associate it was called, in the operations research department. So the I for industry is GTE Sylvania, then G is graduate school, and then O is for operations research department. And I worked with three colleagues, we were called the Gang of Four. We did a lot of work on optimization, which is my area, we had a good time, but it became clear that for various reasons this was not a respectable career. People would say things to me like, oh, you're not really a faculty member in kind of a tone of contempt. So I decided that this was not a good thing for me to spend the rest of my life doing. Um, and then I went to, and this is the reason I wanted the H, what I consider to be heaven, Bell Labs. I went to Bell Labs in 1988. Everyone at Bell Labs kept saying, you missed the golden era, you missed the golden era, which was apparently the 60s and the 70s. But I didn't care. I thought the time I was there was golden enough that was 88 to 2002. Uh, I was in Center 1127, which some of you may know about. It's the center that invented uh, Unix, that invented C, Ken Thompson was there, Dennis Ritchie was there, Brian Kernighan was there. It was wonderful. Surrounded by smart people doing computer science in a stimulating atmosphere, and the point I want to make about it, it, it was productively competitive. So people worked together, but they also worked on their own interests. And it's an environment that I think must be optimal for getting research done and creating collegiality. And I consider it a great joy that I was able to spend time there. However, as most of you know, things have changed at Bell Labs for things we could discuss. And so it seemed to me that a return to academia was a good thing. So in January 2002, I went to NYU. 
NYU does not have an engineering school, so the computer science department and the math department are in a rather unusual organization called the Quran Institute of Mathematical Sciences, which is like a school with two departments. And it really makes a difference to us that we're in, not in a school with an engineering school, which again is something we could talk about. Okay, so now I've done I-G-O-H-E. I wanna just say a word about my research interests. So I work in scientific computing, numerical computing, numerical analysis. I must say I was deeply shocked by what Barbara and Raj said. How could anyone not love numerical analysis? <laughs> it's such a great, it's such a great field. And I got involved in it originally at GTE Sylvania when we had to solve real problems. I got involved in optimization. It's something that I absolutely love. And, and I think the fact that Raj ended up liking it after he took the course shows that with proper education, you could all love numerical analysis. <laughs> Okay, so in optimization, I, I thought of using this to give you a lecture on recent developments in optimization, but I'm not doing that, but there's been a huge amount that's happened in the past 30 years. It's been fascinating. Changes in the way we think about linear programming, changes in the way we think about optimizing functions that don't have derivatives, that are very complicated and expensive. For example, optimizing cancer chemotherapy in a better way than the doctor saying, hmm, take twice as much of this and half as much of that and come back in two weeks and we'll see how you are if you're still alive. So we, we can do better than that now. One of the things I was told maybe to talk about is my personal view of the future of my chosen field, which would be scientific computing or optimization. And this is gonna use up another E okay, because we're expanding the connections of optimization and numerical analysis with other parts of computer science and other parts of science and engineering. It's used in all kinds of applications and I think that's gonna to continue to happen. Within computer science, optimization, continuous optimization and discrete optimization are becoming more closely connected. There's work now where you have discrete variables and continuous variables. You optimize them together. They're new problem formulations. I just want to mention this. Sometimes the classic formulation, you know, find the best value of this function. Today it might be we're in a situation where there's a lot of data, it's very noisy, and we have two seconds to come up with a better solution. That's not a classical problem, but many classical techniques can be adapted to work in it, and this is very exciting. And, and examples in CS, so this segment of my talk is using up two E's. Um, machine learning, this has already been mentioned. If you look at many of the techniques in machine learning, they boil down to techniques in scientific computing, linear algebra, optimization, statistical computing, and so on. Networking, many issues in network design and designing the best networking systems are optimization with important constraints and they tend to have continuous variables and discrete variables. Graphics is an area where optimization is absolutely fundamental and geometric algorithms and I could go on but I won't because I'm trying to keep on time. Okay, so here's the part of my talk where I wanted the A. Okay, what were the effects of my being a student at Stanford? Well, first of all, I'm gonna use the B now. And this has been referred to. I think being at Stanford gave me a broad perspective on computer science. I think this is extremely important. I think it's essential, really, to keep up with the rapid changes in our field. If you have a very narrow view of a very specific area, you are unable to adapt. So the faculty had broad research interests by the time I was back for my PhD, and we were trained as students. Now, 
People talked about how they didn't like numerical analysis, but they had to take the comprehensive exam. And sometimes later they would find out that they actually learned something and they actually liked it. So I think sometimes being forced to do something that you don't think you want to do, this is the role of the faculty who are supposed to be wise, right? They say, you may not like this now, but you'll like it later. It'll be useful to you later. So I think we shouldn't forget that in this era where people say, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. I, I do this now as department chair, right? I'm very sorry, you'll have to take this course whether or not you think you need it. So this is good, uh, breadth in computer science. I think it's very important. V, now I'm using the V, one of the great things about being at Stanford, visitors, okay? I was in scientific computing numerical analysis. Gene Golub brought a stream, a continuing stream of visitors who all wanted to come to Stanford, possibly to be in California, the way Ron said, I don't know why. But they came and they brought new ideas. They provided useful context. They were constantly there talking about new and interesting things. I think this was an absolutely wonderful feature of life at Stanford in the computer science department. It was an extraordinary environment for PhD students. And now the A. Why did I want the A? Because something Stanford CS taught me was to be an activist. And let me explain why. I was told, I don't know if this is true, that when there were the student riots here in the late 60s, George Forsyth was the chair of the department. People came to him and said, these students are rioting. What are we going to do? They're demanding these things. And he said, simple, we'll put them on all our committees. Those of you who are faculty members <laughs> will appreciate this. Because when you're rioting, you have these grievances and you don't have to come up with solutions. If someone says, fine, we're putting you on a committee to deal with this issue, you suddenly think, oh, you have to work with people and so on. So I thought that was a brilliant stroke. So students were on committees when I was at Stanford. I hope they still are. Students um, organized the course evaluation. There were some student bureaucrats, as they were called. And the three of us who were student bureaucrats when I was here have all gone on to be department chairs. Is this good or is this bad? I don't know. But it provided very valuable training. For one thing, we learned to write strongly worded memos, as we called them. So we would call them SVMs. I think nowadays that would mean SWMs. That would mean something different. So we wrote these strongly worded memos about what about this and what about that. The faculty were terrific. They would read the strongly worded memos and answer back, so on. Now, I warned Don Knuth that I was going to tell a little anecdote about him. And I won't tell you the lesson I learned from this, but I find it amusing. A group of us were trying to put together a book about faculty research interests. And we knew that the only way we could do this, if we wrote to them and said, could you send us a paragraph about your research interests, they would never answer. So what we said we would do is we would interview them. We would write a paragraph. We would send it to them and say, if you don't correct this, this is what's going to appear. It's a great technique, really great technique. So we, of course, had to interview Don. I got the job of asking him for an interview. He was extremely gracious. He said, I'll give you 10 minutes. So fine, I went along to his office. I walked in, he greeted me, and then he had a timer on his desk. He doesn't remember this, but I do. And he set it to 10 minutes. And he said, okay, go. And you know, so I thought, oh my gosh, I really better be efficient here. So I quickly interviewed him. The timer rang. He stood up, graciously said, thank you, goodbye. And I left. So you can draw your own conclusions from that, but it was certainly a valuable lesson for me. And the key point I think here is that what 
Being at Stanford and the activist part taught me was that it's important to care about your organization. You can make a difference. It's not just being there. It's not just being a faculty member. It's caring about your organization. Fine. So that used up the B, V, and the A. Future of computer science. So W, women. This is an issue. I'm not going to harp on it, but if you look at this audience here, and you know the figures about the incredible shrinking pipeline, you know that our field alone among all the sciences and engineering fields has the lowest percentage of women, the percentage of high school students who take advanced placement exams in computer science is lower than any, by a huge number, than any other field. Why is that? What's the problem? We don't know the answer to that, but I don't think there are any more women in CS today than there were when I was a graduate student. And that's a serious problem. What else? I think there are new worlds to conquer for computer science. I think we have new problems to solve. The worldview is expanding. The excitement of computer science never ceases to amaze me. Computer science in medicine, computer science in the arts, computer science in business, computer science in education. I, I don't know what John Hennessy is going to say tonight if he survives our standing up You know when he comes in. But I think excitement is something that is just fantastic in computer science today, and we can convey it to our students, and it's real. And so computer science has a wonderful core, and it can stay well-connected with other fields. Finally, I'm going to end with a C, which is community and collegiality. I think I've conveyed from my description of life at Stanford with the students participating in everything, the visitors being here, the, the talking, what a wonderful environment it was for getting a PhD. One could work on one's own research, one could talk to one's fellow students, there was always an opportunity to have a great technical discussion and to speak to faculty. That was true at Bell Labs also. And I think that environment is something that should be guarded and preserved and retained forever because I think it's the best way to train students. So I hope we will do that. Okay, so my last few things, if you haven't been keeping track, I've used up the W, the N, two E's, and a C. And the final E is the end. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. I don't know quite how we ended up with so many people from MIT, but we seem to have spaced them out evenly throughout the panel, so. Rod Brooks. Well, thank you for uh, having me here. It's a great honor to be back here again. Oops. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, how I what happened when I was a student here, what I've been doing since, and what I think is important about the future. I wasn't going to talk about the future so much until I saw the ACM News Digest yesterday where it said that this meeting was going to happen and we were all going to talk about the important questions of the future, so I thought I should add some. Um, when I, I'm the, the, the uh, I, I'm the, sorry? It's, that's, that's good, that's good. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm the latest of the, uh, the, the, the students here, and I, I, when I came here, uh, I had never met a computer scientist before, and I thought they made a mistake admitting me. I came from a little place called Adelaide in Australia, and I went from there to this place up on the hills above the campus here, 
the Artificial Intelligence Lab run by John McCarthy and Lester Ernest, and apparently Lester's not here today, but Lester ran the day-to-day -day management. And it was just a fantastic building up there, uh, a world with all sorts of magic toys. And we sort of looked down at campus and looked down on the rest of the department from up there. Um, and as Ron said, we all had a lot of hair back then. Uh, that's me, and I'm standing right above my advisor, Tom Binford. And over there you see on the, on the right of the image the uh, computer arm, the, the Stanford arm, and that was my introduction to robots, and uh, that's what I've been stuck with ever since. So I came to uh, the computer science department here in uh, uh, 1977, and Ed, I want to point out, I graduated in four years, uh, so I think I helped your average while you were department head. I'm not sure where Ed is right now. Um, and I took the comprehensive exam and passed the numerical analysis section and all the other sections, but then I took the AI qualifying exam. And I like to, I like to say I failed it twice. I didn't quite fail it twice. I sort of failed it one and a half times. And then Terry Winograd and, and Doug Lynette sort of took pity on me the second time around. I, I managed to get through. And I went off uh, to CMU and MIT, and then I, I came back pretty quickly as, a, as a, an assistant professor in, in 1983. And I don't think that the uh, senior faculty here realized how hard my life was. Not for the reasons they expect, but I, back then, and I, I well, I think it was a, a rule across all of Stanford, it probably still is, for a, a PhD thesis defense, there were the typical three committee members there on the committee, and there was a chair of the committee appointed from another department to make sure things were run properly, and then there was a a fifth member who was someone else from the department sort of outside the field and they were known as the department randoms and I was the junior faculty I hadn't figured out how to say no to things and so every PhD thesis defense that came up I somehow ended up being the department random now the way these 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 thesis exams worked where the, the student would get up talk about their work in the public session then there'd be a private session and the private session all the faculty would go around the table and they'd each ask some really penetrating question. Now, you know, I'd be on Don Knuth's students' thesis committees, Zohar Manor, you know, these great computer scientists in fields I didn't begin to understand. I couldn't even read the abstract. And I'm this junior faculty member thinking, these guys are going to be thinking about my tenure case. I better, I, and I didn't really care about the student. I was worried that I didn't want to look really stupid. You know, it was only four years since I'd failed my qualifying exam in the department, and now I'm trying to fake it that I'm a, a, you know, I'm a knowledgeable faculty member. And so it would get around to me, and I'd be really sweating, trying to ask a question which didn't reveal how little I knew about the actual topic. You know, I, well, I got through that, but I, 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 it turns out that, you know, passing the AI qualifying exam it was, it was hard. And a few years later, I met Stuart Scheiber, at uh, Harvard, he's a professor at Harvard. He graduated from here in 1989. We're at a party and we were reminiscing about Stanford even though we hadn't been students here at the same time. And I said, yeah, you know, I failed my AI qualifying exam. And he said, you know what? I failed my AI qualifying exam at Stanford. And then he looked at me in the eye and he said, and you know who failed me? You did. <laughs> so I guess I learned something when I was a student. So I went off and did other stuff um, and uh, these days, uh, I, I am uh, director of the 
uh, not SAIL, but CSAIL, the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. We got Barbara back into an AI group. Um, and this is a, a multidisciplinary lab with faculty from seven academic departments, about 93 of them and 470 graduate students. And, you know, like that wonderful building where SAIL was, we have a rather wonderful building too. And I invite you all to come and visit us when you're in Cambridge. But what I've really been doing since I left Stanford is building robots. I started out building tin can robots on wheels, navigating around. Uh, I got inspired thinking about how insects got around in the world and looked at insect intelligence for quite a while. Um, out of that came all sorts of, oh, I got these out of order, I guess. No, I missed one. Uh, all sorts of uh, walking robots and, and eventually through a series of uh, tests and flights down at Edwards Air Force Base uh, it, it, uh, and a set of other experiments we'd done, we ended up getting the Mars rovers, the 1997 rover, as a result of that work. Then I started working on humanoid robots, and I've been building robots with human form, experimenting with social interaction, and still working on humanoid robots to a certain extent today. I'm really interested in manipulation right now and how these robots can manipulate the world. And along the way, I, I did get the uh, entrepreneurial bug while I was here at Stanford and uh, started some companies, and one in particular, iRobot, is now reasonably successful, and we sell vacuum cleaning robots and floor scrubbing robots and have a few hundred military robots in Iraq. But, you know, Raj said, with a AI, what's going to happen to AI? And uh, Oh, yeah, we, we did that stuff, too. That was fun. Um, what about robots? Where are robots going? I think uh, robots are incredibly important because of demographics. And this is the future stuff. I just want to get this out there. This is the population of Europe in 1950. Uh, men on the left, women on the right in five-year age groups. You can see the notch taken out by the Second World War there in, in that uh, age group, the ones you know, who uh, uh, didn't survive. That's 1950, population of 350 million. Now look what happens as we go forward in time. 50 years forward, another 50 years forward. Look at that change in profile of age groups. If you project out by 2050, there's going to be one pensioner in Spain for every working person. How is that possibly going to work? Um, it's going to be a lot of social upheaval, but also the working uh, age group are going to have to be much more productive than they are now if we're going to have the sort of lifestyle that, that uh, people expect. This is the uh, uh, numbers for uh, the U.S., slightly different because there's still immigration in the U.S., but you see that that red line there is the percentage of the population over 65, and it's an incredibly steep slope about to happen of a big increase in the population over 65 in the U.S. It's already happened in Japan. In fact, Japan has already turned the corner last year and gone into decreasing population overall while the elderly have, have uh, continued to grow. And so we're going to have to have productivity in, in things that, that normally require people to use their hands to do stuff. Um, in the U.S., we've been importing labor. In, in Europe, importing labor for farm work. In, in Japan, not. Um, that's going to become an issue. Uh, we currently outsource our manufacturing, our Walmart-class manufacturing to China, but if you look at the one-child policy there, by the time you get up 50 years, that isn't going to work out either. And as the, as the standard of living goes up in China, where's that labor going to go to? These people, all, by the way, are all building robots, Roombas, uh, in China. And uh, construction, uh, all those sorts of jobs. 
not to even mention elder care, which the Japanese have really been looking at for robots. So I see two revolutions. One that happened here already at Stanford. We had the computers in the back room, and this is an early Sun workstation, which has evolved into the sorts of things we all use. Back then, computers were backroom operations on automation of what was happening on computers was slow and by specialized engineers, and the revolution of the personal computer was personal machines and office workers automating their own work. You know, they'd look at, I, I add up these numbers, I get this sum, okay, here's a spreadsheet, I add up these numbers, I get this sum, and they programmed the personal computers. They didn't think they were programming, they didn't call themselves programmers, but they were automating their own tasks and increased their own productivity. We had lots of arguments for, during the 80s and early 90s that computers really made us more productive, but I think everyone now agrees they have. So my question is, how do we go from this backroom operation, which is what automation uh, and robots currently are, and what will it look like in the future where we have something like the equivalent of personal robots? Because I think we're going to have to have robots that ordinary people use to increase their own productivity and are empowered to automate their own operations in the world. So that's where robots are going. I started working on robots here at Stanford. I've continued at MIT. Stanford's doing some great things in robotics here, and I expect Stanford will be continuing to work in robots. And the second revolution, as I like to call it, after the computer revolution, is going to be coming out of Stanford and other places in the future. And uh, I still look at those as my golden days uh, up on the hill there above the campus. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we have on the order of, a, of a half an hour, and I thought maybe we could first see if there are any questions or comments among the panel, and then we'll open this up to questions uh, from the audience. I don't know whether we have microphones that will come around, or if anybody's, uh, that's someone's job, you might get ready, and we'll do that shortly. Uh, any questions for each other here? Any comments? Any uh, Reactions? We are, we are. I, I, you know, guys, that numerical analysis wasn't so bad. <laughs> it was okay. It's great. All right. Uh, as Hector uh, mentioned, uh, we really uh, had a, a difficult uh, choice in, in trying to select a small panel. We have many great uh, alumni throughout the world. Uh, there, I'm sure there are many interesting people in the audience who have spent time here who might want to comment, and of course, I expect there'll be questions for the panel. So let's go ahead. Whit? Thank you. The traditional activities of the Courant Institute. And I am curious as to whether having numerical analysts, and I assume it still has theoretical partial differential equations in such people, whether you've gotten some joint research that leads to theoretical breakthroughs because of the availability of computer people. Well, I don't want to go on at too much length about this. I'm happy to speak to you later, but you know, because there's no engineering school at Courant, the faculty that come there 
have to understand that there's not going to be an EE department, you know, to build chips or to do things like that. But so many areas of computer science, not just traditional ones, you know, like machine learning is very mathematical in many ways. Networking is very mathematical in many ways. We had talks from candidates last year. They talked about doing optimization of various things and computing approximate solutions. There are very close ties between math and computer science. Um, I will make a personal comment here. Those of us who were at Bell Labs in the days when it was heaven uh, suffer from a syndrome that has been described as Bell Labs nostalgia. So when people started to leave there, they started to look for places that were as close as they could get to the atmosphere of Bell Labs. And I think Courant has such an atmosphere. It's not the same. You know, we have to get grants, we have to teach, we have to do all these things, but it's very good. So I think it's extremely productive. And as you heard from what I said, it seems to me that's a real joy of computer science. You know, that we can do our own research in computer science, but we can have ties to other areas. So. someone else must have a question. And maybe since it takes, do we have two microphones or just one? Okay. Yeah, it's just a quick one. I mean, it's a, a couple of you mentioned golden years, and I, I was wondering whether you, you knew that they were golden while you were living them. <laughs> and maybe what kind of metal years you're living now? <laughs> I think they were the golden years when we were living them, and I, I, I felt that way. You know, I, I felt, I enjoyed going to work, and I would work around the clock, and never felt bad about it, and because, you know, it, but I still, you know, think wherever I am now is the golden years there. But I think Stanford has lost its golden years along the way somewhere, but when probably it's coming back up. That's a personal view, so we, we can debate about that. I don't, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I left, uh, Mar Margaret mentioned uh, going to 1127 in Bell Labs uh, 1988, I think, which is the year I left and came to Stanford, and it, it's, it's been great. So my complaint was for a long time, uh, Stanford starved the computer science department. They only had a small number of faculty members. Only after they moved to engineering college, they started expanding. And for a long period, uh, there, there was a serious constraint about the kinds of things they could do. And I complained to Bill Miller, I complained to Ed Feigenbaum, and I said, when are you going to expand? And they didn't. <laughs> can, can I say a question? Did, did I know the other golden years? I, when I was up on the hill at, at Stanford AI Lab, especially where I'd come from, where I didn't even know of computer science, it was fantastic. Everyone was working on so many things all at once, computer architecture systems, theorem proving, uh, Don would be up there late at night uh, working on tech, um, the robots. It was, it was just fantastic. It was great. And it was this isolated community up there which was inventing everything all at once, which was, which was what made it so fantastic. You did ask what metal, you know, now. Now that I'm an administrator, lead. <laughs> so this is, this is the golden years question I've thought a lot about. And also, how do you tell when you're living it whether something is starting to get less good? So I mentioned that I left Stanford, my research position, and those are comments. But I think if there's intellectual excitement, this always sounds so corny, but it's really true. If you have intellectual excitement and you love what you're doing, it is golden. And if you're surrounded by other people who feel the same way, 
I don't know what the metallic analogy is, but, but it makes it golden. And, and that is, as I said, an atmosphere that I think is provably, to the theoreticians, I have to apologize, provably optimal in terms of, of what stimulates people and makes them do their best work. And certainly when I was a student here, and people keep set, I, I should say, when I was here, people kept saying, you missed the really great group of students who were here before you. And then after I left, people would say, well, you really were before the really great group of students that came after you. But then if you look at the success that we had, we did pretty well. So, you know, I don't know where those comments came from, but, but I, I feel things are golden now. I'm very excited about what I'm doing. And as I mentioned, the new things that we're doing in computer science, I don't see how anyone can fail to be interested. So I give talks to groups of women sometimes and try to convey, why aren't you going into this wonderful field? As I said, it's a real mystery to me. Do add a little bit to that? I think uh, golden, golden years uh, metaphors is one you can't, it's hard to tell when you're there at the time. It, you have to have some perspective and going back. And, and uh, So I think the times were then turbulent, confusing in many ways, but there were so many opportunities, a rich environment, lots of exciting things happening too. But I think one, did, at least I didn't appreciate at the time as being sort of golden years, even though they were. Uh, as for what metal's appropriate now, I think the Gary building that we're in was supposed to be uh, titanium or something, but we couldn't afford it, right? Or something. So, so the, the titanium would be the, uh, the, the new color. So um, I think the years at Stanford were wonderful, um, but I, I have also had a wonderful time since then. Uh, in a way, maybe the atmosphere at MIT is reminiscent of what it was like when we were here as students. And uh, there we have a, a wonderful collegial atmosphere with wonderful students and tremendous intellectual excitement. And I think as long as you're in an atmosphere like that, then it is a golden experience. Great, great question. Just logistically, we have a microphone on this side and a microphone on that side. So put your hand up if you're going to ask a question and someone will come find you on either side and we'll alternate one side or the other. So. Why don't we take a question here? If you have um, someone over here, excuse me, if somebody else wants to right, ask a ahead. question. Oh, you've got a microphone, good. Figured touching on the subject of women, testily touching on the subject of women, uh, for the benefit of uh, Ms. Wright, do any of you have any theories as to why women are not entering in the computer science department? Because from the way I see it, if my obstinate point of view is viable, um, it, it's become, it's part of the social stereotype that goes with computer science that women seem to, nowadays, women seem to think it's, uh, well, not cool to be uh, in computer science, that women that are in computer science are not desirable or not, not attractive. It's not true, but it seems to be the thing that they're thinking. So what are your thoughts on Great. that? Thank you. Do you want to, Barbara and I have strong views on this, so I'll let Barbara go first. Well. You know, nobody actually really understands this, and it's probably not a problem that is going to be solved at the university level because it's, in fact, a societal problem. One theory is that it has a lot to do with the nerd culture in the uh, middle schools and high schools where the young boys are all deeply involved with their computers and computer games, and to the girls it seems very... Uh, a uh, un un very unfriendly way to uh, behave. And so they sort of steer themselves away from computer science. And then by the time they get to uh, college, for many of them, it's too late to make the transition back. So it seems to me that uh, 
if, if in fact that's the explanation, and you understand I'm just sort of talking about a theory, nobody really understands this, then what we need are a lot of outreach programs that try to uh, reach the young women, the girls, you know, before they even get to the college um, age. MIT has a program like that for young women when they're in high school, but maybe this is a problem that has to be tackled even earlier than that. And it's really pretty unclear uh, how we're going to arrive at a solution. What is clear is that we're losing a, a stream of talented people, and it would behoove our profession if we could figure out a way to get them back in. So there is a theory that it's the image problem. I mean, you know, there's a whole committee of the ACM, I think, to look at this problem. People have told me it's a PR problem. And I'm just going to give an example, okay? And I'm not saying I agree or disagree, but they were discussing about who would be a great speaker for a certain conference. And someone said Bill Gates. And then they said, now, are women going to look at Bill Gates and think, this is what I want to be? Now, I don't know whether men look at Bill Gates and think, this is what I want to be. Maybe they do. But, but the answer was no. You know, that this is not someone that they sort of look to as someone they could emulate. So I think there is an element of that. And a final point, and I want to give real credit to Carnegie Mellon, one of the things that's come out is that, although I can't understand this, just like I can't understand why people don't love numerical analysis, but many high school girls do not like programming. They think it's dumb and it's routine and it's mechanical. Now, clearly they haven't been taught very well, but they don't like programming. Whereas, for some reason, boys do. And so if departments look at programming, 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 and they say, this is what you have to do to be a computer scientist, and the image of the field is you sit at your terminal all day writing programs, apparently girls don't find this appealing. So CMU has done wonderful things to get a broader perspective of what it takes to be a computer scientist. And they've been extremely successful. But I think it is something to worry about, which is actually why I mentioned it. Because, you know, I, it just frightens me, this loss of talent to the field, uh, for reasons that I don't understand. <coughs> Hi, I'm Arthur Keller. As a follow-up to that, uh, my daughters actually attend the girls' middle school in Mountain View, where I serve on the board. And uh, they have computer science classes uh, for middle school girls. And, um, my daughters are quite interested in that, as all the other girls. Uh, of course, they don't have to compete with boys to use the computer, so that might help. Um, <clears throat> a long time ago, when you're talking about uh, the issue of the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at Stanford, was mentioned, uh, was the idea that you know, John McCarthy would call up somebody, I guess, Lick Leiter or somebody at, at, at DARPA, and say, give me money, and he gave him money, and then uh, great research happened without that much accountability in terms of what happened. Now we're seeing the research enterprise in terms of raising money up to write lengthy grant proposals for smaller and smaller amounts of money that are more and more directed towards an outcome. DARPA money is more directed towards military outcome than before where it was more general-minded. I'm sort of wondering how you have experienced uh, the issue of, of research funding and, and the kinds of research going on. Bell Labs doesn't exist, pieces like that. How that has affected uh, how, how, what your perspective is on the effects of research funding uh, over uh, since you uh, um, got into the field? Thank you. Yeah, uh, well, since, since most of my job is worrying about research funding, let me uh, address that a little. First, I, I, I tell all faculty that, that you know the good you know what we're not going to go back to the good old days for whatever definition they have the good old days, whether they think the 60s were the good old days, the 70s, the 80s, or the 90s, and next decade won't be the same as this decade. Things are going to be changing dynamically, and we have to figure out how to adapt to that. The, right now in computer science, we, um, 
have much less DARPA funding in general uh, at some places. Uh, at MIT, for instance, it's drastically changed from 90% 10 years ago to 62% five years ago to 23.5% last year. So a complete change of where the funding's coming from, now coming from companies, and some of it is actually coming in very big chunks fr from the right sort of companies that we can work with. But that's not gonna go on forever either. The one thing that I really worry about is um, I most worry about theory, because the rest of us can talk about our research and say, you know, in the first six months we're going to build this prototype, then we're going to do this test, then we're going to evaluate that, etc. The theory group can say, well, you know, we want to think about this general area, and we might prove some theorems. What theorems are you going to prove? Well, they don't know that yet, because they would have already proved them. And so there's a certain, even from corporate funding, there's a certain thing, I don't want to know about your past history, I want to know about your future results before I hand over the money, which makes that undirected theory sort of research difficult to do. And I'm worried that we, there is enough, there's so much accountability that we can't skim off, as everyone skimmed off, as John McCarthy and, and Ed and everyone in the, over the years skimmed off money to pay for the really way out wacky ideas, the long-term ideas, and that's w the danger, I think, that we, we, we're not funding the stuff for 15 and 20 years in the future, and, and I, I see that as my job to try and figure out how to do that, at least at MIT, and I think for other people who are running departments, that should be some real priority for them, because that is a long-term worry. I just want to comment um, with respect to Bell Labs on that. So this was a problem for our management when I was there, and luckily we had very good managers who would go to the green eyeshade types, as we used to call them, and say, look at these patents, look at this, look at that, that we've done in the past year, and isn't this great, and you should keep giving us money. But as Raj just mentioned, the time frame has shrunk, so now it's what are you gonna do in the next three months? And, and, you know, we were told, so some of us would give talks to managers, and if they ask us what we were doing or what we would do, we were not supposed to say, well, we kind of hang around together and talk and, you know, come up with some great ideas and do neat stuff. You weren't supposed to say that, even though that was the truth. Um, you were supposed to say, we have this project, and this is its goal, and this is this and that. And I think it's a real shame. And I think there are sensible people in the corporate world who understand that now, and I'd like to hope that their voices will be heard eventually. But, you know, this image of scientists with endless time, do whatever they want, you know, this isn't popular with everybody else, even though you could argue it's the most productive environment. So it's a big worry, a big, big worry. Yeah, I'd like to, to, hello? I'd like to follow up with that. I, I think the... Uh, the, the crisis in theory funding is, is very real, and I appreciate Rod's uh, support and sympathy for that. And I, I think the attitude towards funding research in, in computer science needs to change a bit. I mean, it's not a consulting house to, to produce prototypes on, on a schedule or something like that. So it really is a place to create the kind of environment we've been talking about, the, the, the kind of golden years that we've been talking about. It's a very important kind of uh, structure for, you know, the, the most important product is graduate students. So you want an environment where graduate students can be excited about the areas they can, they can explore new things. And, and, and they're the, as we all have been, you know, the, the product of, of the, uh, the university. And I think that creating that kind of environment is what needs to be done. And the, fund, the funding sources need to appreciate that more than the specific research topics and, and whether all the references have been made on the, on the pro grant proposal, et cetera, et cetera. So much broader funding, much more focused on creating the right kind of environment than on, on the particular research directions and topics. 
next question from this side, please. I am Shishir Mukherjee, ex-professor, uh, Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad. I did my PhD in operations research from UC Berkeley, and that's why my son graduated from Stanford. Um, I have one comment and another question for Margaret Wright. Regarding, if you, if you would like more women to work on software industry, outsource the jobs to India, where I think a much larger proportion of the of women are working, sometimes side by side, you know, with men and, and they become software families. Uh, my question is this. Uh, during the 80s, I became very fascinated with the field of AI, you know, and I thought that AI and computer science and operations research, integration of all of them will, is the golden future. Yeah. But uh, I'm not that excited right now. Do you think it is still possible that uh, there is an integration of all these fields? I'm and sorry. a more integration of AI and operations research, in fact, my consulting firm is named as ORAICON, O-R-A-I-CON. But I haven't been able to find a project yet you know, where I can use both the, both the techniques or integration of these techniques to, you know. So do, do you, I, I, I know I'm familiar with much of your work. Do you think it is possible that there will be an integration of these fields together? So some people have told me when I discuss machine learning, I should not say it's artificial intelligence because that was oversold in whenever, and now we have to call it a new thing. But machine learning is an area that's had staggering progress and it's really, really interesting on many levels. And of course, as I said, it uses optimization. It's a fundamental tool. All kinds of interesting optimization, which I'm considering as part of operations research and also discrete optimization, come up in machine learning. So I would think there would be projects to do with that that would be obvious and would blend those things. It's your business, not mine, but certainly the people in machine learning that we've hired at NYU want to talk to people in optimization because that's what they want to use, and also in discrete optimization. So I would look there. The other thing to point out is uh, even though we don't fully understand the impact of AI in, on industry, in every area we have touched, there is significant entrepreneurial activities that have resulted in hundreds of billions of dollars of value. And it started with expert systems first. But take natural language. Where do you think? Google and Yahoo and indexing and information retrieval, language processing and everything came from. It came out of the natural language processing research, uh, starting from Lycos and uh, Alta Vista. If you take speech, the same thing, you know, Dragon Systems was sold for $600 million. You know, they had an Enron problem afterwards, but nevertheless, at that time, it was... And uh, so if you take robotics, uh, Rod's company went public. It has a market valuation of a billion dollars, so some, some number like Not that. Quite. You know, so, uh, so it, it turns out every area I can look at, if you look at including computer music, which is not necessarily AI, I have been able to identify 
significant value has been added as a result of this research. Whether you want to call it AI or individual component, doesn't matter. But uh, that, that's going to be true, is true already for machine learning, especially in data mining and text mining research uh, in, in a major way. I think we have two more microphone placements, and then nobody ever really minds if you go to lunch a few minutes early. So why don't we make these the last two questions? Yes. A similar question to similar question to the last one and there have been references to computer science in medicine computer science in construction computer science in farming computer science in the home and it seems to me as if many of the opportunities for the future are in computer science in just many of the activities of the world which have traditional university departments but they're also uh, the, the world is the laboratory and so the question is, from each of your perspectives, or from many of your perspectives, within your universities, and specifically your computer science departments, what is the encouragement for multidisciplinary work of the computer science students so that they can come out and work in construction or work in agriculture or work in medicine, value it, bring the problems back into computer science, and bring the solutions uh, into these other fields? And then how is it that you can engage the, the practitioners of these other fields in the computer science discipline enough so that they can uh, work collaboratively? Uh, I'll, I'll answer shortly and then let others. Um, at MIT, uh, there's a couple of things going on. One is we have a lab structure which is orthogonal to the department so we can have multiple people from multiple departments working together, for instance, in the computer science and AI lab. But the other thing that's happening is many departments are hiring people whose PhDs are in computer science and even artificial intelligence, like aeronautics and astronautics, mechanical engineering, civil engineering in the past, departments, uh, uh, school of architecture, departments across the university are hiring people whose PhDs come from a computer science department somewhere else. This, of course, leads to a little bit of turf tension. Why didn't we get those slots uh, if you're hiring a computer scientist into the computer science part of electrical engineering and computer science? And I think it's still going to be some time working that out. But that is one way in which computer science is uh, being uh, acknowledged by all those departments as being critical to their go-forward mission. Uh, uh, and so I think we're going to see a... a, a, a in the same way, you know, every department of it in an engineering school has mathematics as one of its core things. Right now, computer science is one of the core things that all engineering departments need to have as a competence. And so we will see that continue. So I'm going to articulate a principle that may seem totally obvious, but is often uh, completely ignored, which is you reward the behavior that you want. Okay, and if you don't reward the behavior that you want, you should not expect people to do it on their own just because it's a good idea. So, harking back to Bell Labs, we were rewarded for working together, okay? So people worked together. They got rewarded for it, they got recognized for it. Universities do not always operate that way. So at NYU, if there's some activity that involves two schools, let's say arts and science and the medical school, administrators, not me, start saying, who's getting the overhead? Well, you know, that doesn't exactly help the sort of collegial scientific discussion, and I think there's a move away from that attitude, but, you know, it's the way they're trained. And when, when, when people are rewarded for getting a lot of overhead for their school and not sharing it and keeping everything to themselves, that's what they do. 
So luckily, there's enough scientific excitement about these cross-disciplinary things that they're happening anyway. But I think if universities really rewarded them, it would completely change the picture in a much better way. But luckily, they're happening anyway. But I think in addition to rewarding that, I think that the universities just need to get out of, the, out of the way in some of these things and encourage them. And I think MIT's very good at that. Uh, interdisciplinary projects are, are, are common. Uh, let me just mention one, the, the voting technology project that I participate in has folks in the media lab, folks in computer science, folks in political science. I mean, it, there's a very easy way to set up a project like this which spans multiple departments, gets funding from whatever sources, and, and brings together students and faculty to, to look at a problem like voting technology and how to make it better. And, and so I think just making it easy to set up interdisciplinary projects is something that university administration should think about hard and make it as easy as possible because we need more and more of these kinds of things as time goes on. Any other comments? Or do, we, do we have one more person who's yeah, been patiently waiting? Go ahead, Benjamin. Secondly, what should be done about it, in your view? Um, there's quite a contrast here, obviously, with a lot of other countries, Europe, India, China, etc. So um, I can speak for MIT. Uh, the question is, there's been, uh, he's talking about the drop in enrollment in computer science that happened after the uh, dot-com bubble burst. And are we worried about it? And what's the situation in the United States relative to other countries where apparently this drop is not happening? What happened at MIT in our department was that there was a drop. It trailed other places. And it wasn't as steep as what other places saw. And it's already reversing. So I think that uh, there's a tendency on the part of young college students to pay a lot of attention to external events and sort of make very short-term decisions based on that, but the situation tends to correct itself. And so I would say that at MIT, we would be quite worried if we saw this de decline continuing. But since it seems to be reversing, uh, my view is that it's just another one of, if, if you look over the, at the enrollment over the past 20 years, you'll see that there have been other periods where there was a precipitous drop followed by a, a growth again. And so it's not clear to me that there's actually something permanent going on here. It looks more like uh, undergraduates looking at the news and making a decision that gets changed and by, by the next uh, generation. OK, thanks. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I think I'd like to give everybody a chance to put in any final thoughts as we wrap up. Yes, Raj? Uh, we haven't had any controversy in this comments, so let me start one. I disagree with Margaret about requiring courses and you got to do what you got to do if you're going to get through the degrees. Uh, I think we lose a lot of very good people um, as a result. You know, we were talking about women not being motivated to do this stuff because certain requirements 
they find obnoxious and they don't want to do them. And uh, you know, for uh, the the best example I remember from my days at, uh, here at 60s is uh, the same year I took Gene Gene's course uh, and and enjoyed it. There was another student, Larry Breed, who was very good, brilliant in other ways, but he flunked the course, and I, and then he dropped out of the program. He just left. He said, "If this is what I got to do, I'm not going to do it." I don't know what happened to Larry, but the issue is um, there are new ways of doing that. Technology now permits new ways of giving the same experience that required courses used to do. We have a lot of deeper understanding of cognitive science techniques, learning by doing, learning by example, just-in-time learning, self-paced learning. If I need to learn something, it, there are ways of creating that content so I can learn it the day before I need to know it in one day, rather than being told you know, 20, 30 years before I may need to know it, uh, to use the content. You know. So there's a, there's a whole trade-off we have to make. Some of us are disciplined. If we got to do it, we kind of sit down and learn it and graduate. But many others just drop out. And that's an unfortunate result of the educational system that we have. Well. <laughs> Did I start a controversy? <laughs> no, no, I mean, in our department, we had a wrenching discussion about what the requirements should be for the PhD program. And there's this interesting question of what must you know to get a PhD in computer science? And there's a wide range of opinions about it, and it keeps changing. But eventually, someone joked that we had to have a faculty meeting that started 8 in the morning and went till midnight, and then we'd collapse our exhaustion, and we'd vote on the requirements. But basically, ultimately, we came to a consensus. A problem that I see, which is purely, it's solvable, is that many courses are designed with two purposes that aren't compatible. They're designed for people that are going into the field, and they're designed for people who are not going into the field. And, and so the ones that are designed for people who are going into the field are maybe too too detailed, too demanding, and so on and so forth, for people who are not. So maybe we could come up with I've proposed at NYU micro courses, you know, a short thing that would introduce the main points, and that would be fine. But the thought of not of having a PhD in computer science and not knowing anything about scientific computing is appalling to me. There's a controversial statement. All right, I, I think I think micro courses is exactly the right thing to do if I can learn something in a day or a week. And these days, what I do is I go to Wikipedia and want to learn about some subject. Usually I find enough what I need to know as an introduction to the subject. That's often I find that's more than enough for the things I need to do because I'm not going to practice it. I'm just going to need to know enough so that I can discuss it intelligently with the student that wants to do it, right? And, and so, so I think, I think microcourses may be the answer. No, I think, in my mind, by far the most controversial thing that's come up is some hint that this, the golden age of the computer science department at Stanford is over. So I'm very tempted to, to jump at and uh, take the bait here, but we have a good uh, panel set up right after lunch to address that exactly. So I think I'll leave that for after lunch. No, in, in fairness, I think it was our golden years are over. <laughs> I don't agree with that. Well, I just want to make sure no one heard it any differently. <laughs> so I think we have a, a kind of a free-for-all for lunch. There are bagged lunches all over the place. You go grab one. 
and uh, try to get that before someone else. But before we do that, let me thank our, everyone in the panel. It's been a, a most enjoyable evening. lines for lunch on the left on the right and one outside they're all identical so you can take your pick also outside it's a little bit chilly but there are lots of places to sit and and have your lunch outside if you don't mind the, the yeah, cool weather The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. 
please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.